I'm Mitchell Cushman, and I'm the co-director of Mr. Burns, A Post-Electric Play. I'm Sebastian Heinz, and I'm a co-star in Mr. Burns, A Post-Electric Play. And you're listening to ContraZoom on liveinlimbo.com. This is ContraZoom. Where we go back and forth about film. Now, the last two episodes have been very specifically related to film. Episode one was the first 10 years of Best Picture winners, and episode two was uh, discussing a screenwriters conference where writers talk about movies that they write and such like that. We're going to take a little bit of a different spin for this episode and not talk about movies and not talk about the people behind the movies, but theater. Not just any sort of theater. There is a new play put on by a theater group called Outside the March called Mr. Burns, a post-electric play, wherein after the apocalypse, a group of survivors discuss their love of The Simpsons and eventually evolves into a form of entertainment. Instead of watching movies, you watch recreations of Simpsons episodes. So, in a sense, it's still similar because our whole purpose in ContraZoom is to discuss methods of storytelling. Now, I know you're not, not to say that you're not a fan of Theodore Andreas, you just have less of a history with it as compared to me. First impressions, what did you think of the show? Well, yeah, when it comes to theater, I'm somebody who knows, like, the classics that have come to Toronto or New York when I visited it. You know, I've seen The Lion King. I've seen The Producers. I've seen Avenue Q. I've seen, like, the cookie cutter. This is what you should go see when it comes to theater. So I know a bit about theater, but not, like, the every nook and cranny. To see something like this, though, it's something refreshing, and it actually reinstilled this need to go to the theater for me, actually. Um, not that I ever lost it, per se, but this was a very invigorating event where you go to this seemingly abandoned theater. Everything takes place around you. If you're watching this troupe after an apocalypse inside of this theater, and it's so involving within just the story, but also the environment as well, that it's more than just a play, just in a way that we try to look at film as more than just film, I would say. This is a medium that extends itself outside of what it is. And I was actually pretty astounded by it. What did you think? Well, I quite enjoyed it. Uh, one thing I also want to ask you is this theater group, they specialize in site-specific theater, which to people who may not understand what that means is they take a production and instead of it just being in a theater where you sit down in your seats, the actors come out on stage and they perform for you the space is part of the show. It is a character. Have you ever seen any shows like that? And if you haven't, what was your experience as far as almost being a part of the show as an audience member? Well, the only extent I've seen, which you can probably attest to since you are heavily involved with the theater troupe, um, is something within an actual theater, but they add aspects for the play within the theater. It's still within the this, this stage and the theater. This was different, though, because this wasn't any theater. This was actually a movie theater that these people end up living in for this play. So it's a bit different. And from what I can tell, uh, outside the March, they've also done houses, classrooms, I believe. Yeah, they've done some pretty unique things. Uh, so at first, at first glance, this sort of seems like it's, you know, them resting on their laurels, but when you're actually there, you realize it's as unique of an experience as taking over something like a kindergarten classroom or over someone's house. Right, and uh, to answer your question, I think it's terrific because there are so many things that happen within this play where you don't have the destruction of the illusion, where I remember there are parts within the play the first act anyways, because there are three within uh, Mr. Burns, a post-electric play. Um, I remember parts in the first act where I was thinking, oh, okay, so what's this supposed to be? 
is he is he hanging from the ceiling? What is this? But then I realized, oh my goodness, hang on a second. No, he's actually where he's supposed to be in relation to the entire story. This isn't outside. This isn't somebody's house. This is actually a movie theater. The one you're in, the very same movie theater. So once I got all of these questions out of the way, the whole thing was just an engulfing experience where your your imagination is suspended for a bit because every, all the work is done for you. So you could just enjoy everything, which helps a lot because something like this play is so creative that you want to pay attention to everything it's trying to say. So it was great. That, that's good that you say that. If if more theater was this original, do you think it would either be more popular and would it encourage someone like you who only has a cursory interest to go more? Possibly. Uh, then again, you probably know of this when it comes to film. There's this new apparent innovation where you go to this one theater and it's surrounded 360. It's like a sphere where you look anywhere you want and you basically create your own story within these movies that are played there. Some people think that's innovation. Some people think it's a disruption of what we already know and it's not going to go very far. Now, the same way that film was basically seen as a joke when it first came out by the upper class and that look at it now, um, you can't necessarily shrug off any of these possible step forwards without taking these risks and seeing where they go. Having said that, I think this kind of movement within theater will be strong. I don't know if it'll ever extend itself outside of what it is now, except for maybe it'll just get stronger within its own realm as opposed to, and like taking over plays that people know now. However, I think that the movement itself will grow and you'll find more people like me who were just really blown away. I mean, I actually want to go back and watch this again. So there you have it. There's my answer for that. <laughs> to, to a casual person, do you believe that that's a selling point when you say, hey, you're going to an old rundown movie theater, you feel kind of nervous and that nervousness is reflected back to you because everyone is around you. It's not just on stage. Yeah, and without giving too much away, because are, are we doing spoilers for this episode, or are we keeping everything uh, uh, under wraps? L- let's let's try to keep it a bit under wraps. I feel like the the third act, especially, which I'm sure is what you want to mention, is a uh, is a fairly unique thing. Just like how I saw it before you, and I didn't want to tell you about what happens in the third act. I think people, if they do want to see it, should go and experience that. Right. So, okay, without giving anything away, hopefully you'll catch my drift as I try and hint towards you. I was in a seat where a lot of stuff happened, especially towards the end of the second act. You probably can guess what I'm talking about now. Yes. And that was virtually right beside me, this act I won't mention. But once you see it, hopefully everybody will understand. There's a bit of a confrontation that happens in the aisles. And I'm guessing you are sitting on an aisle seat virtually right beside me and I was tensing up, which I don't do with theater, you know, very seldom with movies as well. I was tensing up. I was scared to keep looking. My neck was hurting, but I was like, I can't stop looking at this because I don't know when, when somebody's going to break and I don't know when, when something's going to happen. And once it did, I was like, okay, it's fine. It's fine. It's happening. But for a good couple of minutes, however long it takes for this confrontation to finally go forwards i was sitting there kind of like with my veins bulging out of my neck you know it was an experience it was an actual experience well well good i'm I'm glad to hear you say that now i was fortunate enough to chat with two people involved with this mitchell cushman who's one of the co-directors and sebastian hines who's one of the actors in the production and uh, i got to ask them a bit about the experience about working on such a, a unique play so let's give a listen to that Today, I'm joined with two people from a very exciting Toronto theatre company called Outside the March. They're putting on a new play called Mr. Burns, a post-electric show. And I'm here with Mitchell Cushman, one of the co-directors, and Sebastian Hines, one of the stars. So thank you both for joining me today. No problem. Great to be here, Dakota. Uh, I think, first off, before I get to some questions, I feel like I need to see how well you know The Simpsons, and I have a few trivia questions for you. Are you down for that? 
Bring it on, Dakota. We got it, man. Okay. Now, I went a little bit easy, mostly because it's been a while since I've caught up with it, but <laughs> I, I wasn't too sure what your skill level was going to be, so uh, we'll start a little bit easy. Cool. Um, I guess, Sebastian, if you want to answer first, and then Mitchell, you can steal if he embarrasses himself. Okay. Well, no, 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 no. This is like a pinch hitter situation. We'll, we'll switch after the first question. Okay, cool. Okay, let's do it. Okay, Sebastian, who convinces... Lisa to become a vegetarian. Sebastian's looking at me like he wants me to help him. <laughs> I'm sorry. Did, did this phone call drop? I'm hearing nothing but tumbleweeds. Oh my gosh. Um, oh God. Uh, oh, oh, that, the, that boyfriend, the boy who she really likes. You're so wrong. Oh, Mitchell, do you want oh, no, to no, step no. in? In the Simpsons movie, she loves okay, that boy who's a vegan, it. right? It's Apu Nahasapina Pentalon, uh, aided by Paul and Linda McCartney. Oh, yes, we do have a winner there. Are you serious? <laughs> I just looked at you asking if you knew. <laughs> yeah, but we're against one another. We're not against each other. This is I don't BS. think you listen when they reviewed the rules here. Wow, I didn't know this was a competition. Okay, cool. Okay, Great, all right, man. all right. One point okay, cool. for Mitch. All right, yeah, question two yeah. for Mitchell. Um, what is the name of the Barbie knockoff and who is its biggest fan? Uh, Malibu Stacy. That's easy. And Lisa is the biggest fan until until she becomes uh, disenfranchised with her politics. Uh, no, I'm going to go with uh, a, a different answer. Oh, uh, no, Sebastian. Waylon Smithers. Shit. Oh. <laughs> Smithers. Smithers is the head of the, I believe it's like the Malibu Stacy yeah. uh, Historical Society or something like that. Um, all right, Sebastian. Yeah. What character did Albert Brooks play who taught Homer all about hammocks? This is BS. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Come on. This, this is like the all-time classic Simpsons episode. I don't know. Mitchell? I'm sorry, Dakota. H- uh, Hank Scorpio? That is correct. Jeez, this is, this is depressing. <laughs> okay, I'll, I'll do one more. Um, Mitchell, who spoke Maggie's first words? I think it's Matt Groening. No. Sebastian? Oh, I read this recently. Uh, and bonus points oh, if you know what it was. I, if Sebastian doesn't know, I have another guess. <laughs> it, it's not Nancy Cartwright, is it? No. Is it Matt Groening's daughter? No. Mitchell? Uh, Elizabeth Taylor. Correct. Nice. Uh, and bonus this, points. This is what why he's words? directing The Simpsons show, and I'm just acting as a character who knows a little bit about The Simpsons. <laughs> All right, all right. I guess now that fun is over. Uh, I'm sorry, Sebastian. I think you need some brushing I up to do. I had zero fun in that. <laughs> oh. I had a pretty good time. All right, there you go. Some uh, cast camaraderie, cast and crew camaraderie <laughs> to deal with. Um, all right, first question. Um, I guess I want to approach this from, from both of you. Mitchell, after doing uh, basically a nearly one-person show in Vitals last time, also starring Catherine Cullen, who's in this show, was it a purpose choice to make it an ensemble piece? And Sebastian, for you, your last show was also a one-man show doing Brotherhood, a hip-hopera. How is it different transferring from a one-man show to an ensemble? Mm. Well, it was definitely a conscious choice not to use Sebastian's parents' house a second time. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, it, I, I think it was a conscious choice in the sense that we knew we were looking for a project where the entire core creative team could could sink our teeth into it creatively. Um, the group of us last all worked creatively together on Mr. Marmalade, which was really the, the first production that helped give our theater company an identity. And we, we felt like it was, it was time for us to find something else that we could all creatively dive into. That was in 2012 and 2013. So it's been a little while. Um, for, for me, Dakota, um, going from brotherhood to this, uh, uh, you know, there's this thing, I don't know if you've heard of it. It's like the idea of second circle. Um, where you're in relation to another person. And when you're doing a one-man show, you know, oftentimes you find yourself in relation to audience members, but for the most part, you have to create all the, the imagination yourself. Whereas with this show, um, I'm constantly being energized by my co-stars and, and co-actors uh, during the show, uh, which makes for a really rewarding and, and present experience. I would say one of the things that really appealed to me about the script is just what an ensemble piece it is. Uh, so not only are, are there eight performers in the show, but it's really the play is really about the dynamics of 
of a community. And so it's not a show that upholds one performer or character over anyone else. It's really about the way in which these people relate to one another. And uh, in some ways, similar to another piece that we tackled a couple of years ago, Passion Play, and that, I don't know, pieces that involve how society relates to one another, how communities of people relate to one another, and look at how that is similar to the act of putting on a play definitely really appealed to me. Absolutely. Uh, now, as you were mentioning, the last show that you did, it was in Sebastian's parents' house. You guys specialize a lot in site-specific shows. What was the process of finding and choosing this old theater that Mr. Burns is being put on in like? Well, we knew we were looking for a location that would evoke something of the themes of the play. Uh, early on, we decided that we wanted to to try to take the gamble that the that the, the play is based on this idea of living in a world without any electricity and, and make that our production model. So we were very committed to the idea of performing the show without any on the grid electricity and something about taking that concept and putting it in a movie theater, a space that would be traditionally electrically powered to, to take on its function and its meaning felt, felt very appropriate. What would a movie theater become in a post-apocalyptic world without electricity? We gave that space a bit of a trial run before that when Mitchell um, did this festival out in the East End called Crawl, and he had uh, a New York playwright performer named Mike Daisy perform there. And we sort of discovered that right around the same time that we knew we were going to be doing the show, and you look around the building and it really feels post-apocalyptic in the right way. Completely. It's got a lot of character, which is one of, one of, the, one of the big things we're looking for when we look for a space. We know we're going to go into it and, and adapt it and do work on it, but we're also looking for a space that will have it's its own identity. Yeah, Mitchell made sure that everything felt as cataclysmic as possible before we actually opened so that we were really in the mindset of people surviving the apocalypse. It was <laughs> it, pretty it was pretty damn dirty, let me tell, tell you. That. It, it's run down in, in the best possible way. It doesn't I didn't feel like it's a disgusting place, but you definitely feel that this is a place that has had people in before then there's a break without people and now people are in it again. I think yeah. it, I think it's the decor of it has inspired Sebastian's facial hair. So it, it works really well. Yeah. Wild yeah. and untamed. Yeah. Well, the, the, actually that theater has had quite the sorted amazing history. Um, it used to be, a uh, like a Skinamax movie theater. I thought that might yeah, be. And then, and then it was a Bollywood movie theater uh, and then it became an independent movie theater. And now it's uh, the host of Mr. Burns of Post Electric Play. And we've renamed it for the course of the run, the Aztec Theater, which is the name of the movie theater in Springfield. And what's been funny and great about that is it's been fun watching the theater take on that identity in the city. So we were chatting a couple of days ago with a, another member of the independent theater community who was talking about the venue. And he was saying, oh, yeah, our theater company has been talking about renting out the Aztec for a while. <laughs> That's pretty funny. I, I almost got tripped up and I said, wow, isn't that ironic? They found a theater called the Aztec when in The Simpsons it's also called the Aztec. And I almost <laughs> asked you about that until I realized what an idiot I'd look like. <laughs> no, no, not, not, not at all. I mean, it's the joy of, of, of bringing life to a really undiscovered space in the city. Mm. Now, uh, all three acts are, are basically standalone stories. As an actor, Sebastian, how do you approach playing three different characters in the same night where they're all sort of unique? Mm. Uh, I mean, truth be told, uh, it's the same character in the first two acts, but it is seven years difference. Um, and so there's a lot that changes for him in that time. Um, I, I thought that it took a lot of uh, emotional heavy lifting and work before then. Uh, you know, you talked about ensemble before. We're constantly talking about the themes of the play as a group and how these characters are changing. Um, so I, I can tell you that it, it's it's challenging, but um, but it's rewarding to put in little little pieces here and there to show that the characters aged. Um, you know, figuring out between year one and year seven, has he you know gotten into a fight? Does he have a you know, is his leg broken or something? Does uh, Is he more excited about working with the theater company? Is he more interested in The Simpsons now? Um, and then once we go 75 years into the future, it feels like, um, th you know, the things that I connected to with the most are going to Remembrance Day ceremonies and thinking about how I felt when I was honoring something that happened so long ago that I don't have any personal uh uh, experience with, but I know people who've gone through um, uh, the events of World War One, oh, World War Two, I should say. That's interesting. Um, 
because it really is a bit of uh, you have to remove yourself from that where you're looking at be like, okay, what are the stories that I've heard and how am I going to portray that? So you're dealing with not only secondhand information, but it's mostly third or fourth hand information that you're, you're working with. Exactly. Mythology, broken telephone. It becomes larger than life um, at, at that stage of things. And especially the, the event they're reflecting on being so, sizable and fundamental in terms of shaping this new world. Mm-hmm. And now, Mitchell, when you're co-directing with Simon Bloom, what does that entail? How, how do you deal with potentially conflicting methods of achieving what I assume is the same ultimate goals that you have? Sure. Well, Simon and I run the company together. And so in many ways, uh, co-directing the show has just been an extension of our, our collaborative artistic process as we as we curate the work that we do. Um, we We each... Uh, we, I should say collectively, we, we worked over the past year to come up with a very detailed uh, sense of the aesthetic of the world and the creative decisions we wanted to make. But we also were different people. We have different impulses. And I think in this case, working together allowed the show to be that much richer. Um, in terms of the actual process, we would switch off sort of every two hours in rehearsal, which one of us was more leading the charge and which one of us was a more of a quiet eye in the room to keep an eye on. On other details, um, we, we try not to step over each other's toes, and it, at least in this process, felt like a very healthy way of working. Mm-hmm. That, that's really interesting. Sebastian, how was it with you having to deal with two different voices? Yeah, I wanted to say from an actor's perspective, it's actually been really, really re- uh, rewarding. Um, I think one, one is always worried that, um, that visions will collide, but at no point did I feel like that happened. And actually... They would they, like in the room, it would literally be that we'd start the day with Simon and Simon would be directing and then we'd move on to the next beat or, or part of the of the act. And Mitchell would just take over and Simon could take uh, kind of a, a break, you could say. That's interesting that you say that because I've, I've heard stories of uh, when people work on like a Coen Brothers movie, how it's essentially two bodies with one brain uh, working simultaneously to achieve the same thing. So you ask one guy one thing and then, you know, five minutes later you go to the other guy and he says the exact same thing. Yeah. Well, we tried to get the Coen Brothers to direct the show, but it, it, didn't, it didn't work out. So we thought this would be the next best thing. Oh, they weren't what? available? That's a shame. um you know something kind of cool is it it, sometimes it felt a bit like a good cop bad cop thing Uh, (laughs) well it would switch daily (laughs) depending on who got more sleep um it was you know honestly dakota was really nice like mitchell would be sort of telling everybody collectively what to do as an ensemble and then simon would just sort of jump in and just chat very intimately with one of the actors and give a more a more specific note um and i actually think that it's a style that uh that it would be great if more companies uh, tried out uh, because for us, it was very rewarding. And it, and it, it's such a large project. I mean, normally there's in the show, there's seven or eight people on stage as many different facets of things going on in the background and the foreground. And also it was a process where the design was very integrated throughout. So we always had at least one or two of our members of our design team working with us, trying out different things. And so it meant that each of us could have a different focus at a particular moment. Wow, that's pretty interesting. Um, now, in this play, it really has a lot to do with understanding pop culture obsessions. Um, did that help you understand your own obsessions? And also, what would you cling to in your mind if the electricity went out? It's hmm. a very good question. I mean, definitely working on the show and working with so many competent people, especially on the design and technical side, has made me realize just how futile and useless I would be in an apocalyptic moment. Like, I can... I can tell you the people on our on our team that I would really like to be in the presence of when all hell breaks loose. But do you have uh, do either of you have a specific things that um, you would want to cherish as far as a memory, whether it's a, a movie or, or a specific song or something like that, where where that will help you connect to reality? Mm. I definitely think The Simpsons would be up there for me. I think that's probably one of the reasons I was so drawn to this play in the first place. It, it it's been the 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 early seasons of the Simpsons were such a fundamental uh, part of, of shaping my personality. I think my sense of humor and my, my cultural reference point for so many things Uh, to think about a world where I could no longer watch them would make me very, very very sad. Dakota, I've thought most about um, actually the rule of law, the rule of law just disappearing and what happens when, you know, you don't have an authoritative, like a government or a, or a police system that's, that's uh keeping an eye on everything um 
you know, like, especially in the first act, first act and the second act, there's, there's this very palpable fear that goes through almost all the scenes. Um, and that doesn't really, uh, exist, uh, for us today, especially in a place like Canada. Um, so I think that that was, uh, that was something that really jumped out at me as, uh, as something foreign to me, um, in the show and, and that I would miss that sense of, uh, relaxing. That, that's pretty interesting because in your head, you know what's right and wrong. But if you were to take something from someone, there is no punishment behind it. There is no recourse except yeah. for how people would deal with it themselves. Yeah, and it's about survival, right? And when it's about survival, there is no right and wrong. It's simply my family versus yours. As a famous Simpson scenes go when he's fat Tony is saying, is it wrong to steal a loaf of bread for your family? Is it wrong to steal a loaf of bread, a whole truckload of bread to feed your family? And he says, well, what if your family doesn't like bre- bread? They like, uh, I can't remember. Cigarettes. Like Cigarettes, right. <laughs> yeah, something like that. Um, how important is the art of storytelling regardless of the medium for you guys? Definitely become a pretty, I think a fundamental part of what we do as a company. I mean, in addition to the, the theater work that we do, we run a monthly storytelling night in Kensington called the spoke. And, and this has felt like a very great companion to that. Uh, cause it, uh, I, I think the first thing that really charmed me about the piece and made me feel emotionally connected to it is how it celebrates oral st- oral story, oral storytelling as being the building bl- block of all theater and kind of all communication. Along those lines, do you think there's any major differences or even similarities between theater and film works when telling a story or even something like the the oral storytelling that you guys do? I do think it's, I think that there's, I mean, I feel like there's a lot of differences between the two mediums. I, I love film, but I, I feel like that what we're trying to achieve when we put on a show is uh, a kind of communal experience with the audience that it's hard for me to envision film being able to achieve because because the people aren't actually there mm-hmm. i think hopefully a strong piece of theater can be an ex, uh, it can be a collective experience for everyone in the room yeah i i think that um in the type of theater that we've been making these past couple of years uh we give the audiences um a lot more opportunities to um uh, to kind of choose their own adventure and decide what they're going to look at or engage with at any given time. And in film, it's kind of all about having a specific focus in every shot, right? If you have a shot that's confused, um, then the audience is kind of confused. They don't know what to look at. Um, whereas with our, our form of theater, it feels more like a, a rich tapestry. You can look over at this character and they're up to something. You can look at that character and they're up to something. There's always a central story, but there's also um, kind of a myriad of things to engage with. That being said, I think we're also excited about uh, places where film and theater can intersect. And Sebastian's been a great point person for that as he dabbles in both worlds. And the, the trailer that we made for this show is, is just one example of that. Absolutely. Would you, would you compare almost something like what you're doing to almost like a Robert Altman film where, you know, you have characters constantly talking over each other and people coming and going in the scene and the camera is more of a, a, a fly on the wall sort of thing. It still feels different to me. It still, it feels, it feels just more of an open canvas uh, and the audience has more agency than I think it's possible to achieve in film. Absolutely. Um, how about you, uh, you tell us about the next project that outside the March is working on. Uh-huh. Uh, well, that, 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 that is both top secret and undecided. So I don't, I don't think that we can. Well, well, don't you have, uh, something I wish I was lonely coming up for summer works? We, 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 we do. Um, but we're, we're keeping, we're keeping a lot of the details for that project a little bit under wraps. I guess what I can tell you about it is that, um, it, it's a collaboration with, uh, two UK artists and they had created a piece called, I wish I was lonely that looks at how, um, how cell phones have, ha, ha, rather than being a communication tool, have actually been a separating tool. And uh, we'll be re-exploring that text in collaboration with them in, 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 in some unique ways. Uh, Simon Bloom is, is helming up that project. That's, uh, that seems fairly interesting. Uh, a bit of a teaser material, I guess. And that will be uh, going up in August, I believe. That's right, yeah. Mm-hmm. Early August with Summerworks. Summerworks. Okay. And we also have uh, another one of our co- company members, Catherine Cullen. Um, she's, she's, she's staging a show at Summerworks as well called Stupid Head, which is a, a music, musical about her experiences with dyslexia, which is also a, a can't-miss show, I would say. It's awesome. Okay, well, I'll make sure to include uh, notes for both of those in uh, in, in our show wrap-up. 
Right. Um, now, Mr. Burns runs until June 7th in the historic Aztec Theater uh, <laughs> near Gerard and Pape. Ticket information can be found uh, in our show notes. And make sure you follow the group on Twitter at Outside the March. I appreciate the both of you so much for speaking with me today. Sure thing, Dakota. Dakota, it's been great. Thank you so much for your questions. Thank you. All right. Now, that was pretty fun for me. And as much fun as I'd love to dissect what the play actually was, I'm a little bit more curious. Why are we doing a podcast on a film show about a play? Are you asking me? I am. Okay, well, here we go. It's interesting because, again, without giving too much away, we're allowed to give the basic premise away as much as we can. Go, Sadly, go right with ahead, yeah. Yeah, sadly, you will understand with a play like this, it's one of those things where you have to give a little bit of a way for it to make any sense at all. Um, so I'll try my best to not step over the line too much and completely wreck the experience for anyone. Basically, there's an apocalypse that happens, as you've heard a little bit in the interview. Um, and like the folklore that we've had passed down to us for many generations, whether it be through mythology, religion, culture, or just storytelling, the people of this future, which seems like it's happening present day, actually, um, they pass on what they know best, pop culture and television. So they pass on their knowledge of The Simpsons and they try and re reenact, you know, different episodes and scenarios so they can forget about the world being a mess and just reflect on things that made them smile, which, again, is The Simpsons. And... There's a part within all of this where, again, without giving too much away, this reenacting of The Simpsons or any other TV shows ends up becoming kind of a sought-after pastime. And because there's no electricity in this dismal future, they have to reenact everything themselves as best as they can. Kind of like, except for the video recording, of course, it's something like, um, what's that movie again by Michelle Gondry? Uh, uh, please uh, be kind of yeah, yeah. Where they do the swading with as little budget as possible, basically. That imagine that, but instead of on video, it's on stage with every nook and cranny being some sort of a a tool that uh, will open up this, set this off. This sounds created by this, and they try and work in everything about television culture, whether it be the actual episodes and laugh tracks, or even the jingles that come with things, whether they be well-known pop songs bought by companies or just songs catered for the actual commercial. Now they try to re represent all of these pop culture ideas basically in front of you. And well, of course it's not a film or it's a television show either. It's still a representation of how storytelling is very different in each medium because while we're watching this, this isn't necessarily a play. It is a play, but not by any structural sense. This is television as told by a play within a movie theater. So the kind of the kind of blueprints for all three are smushed together where you have the full dimension of film represented through how far actors are running up and down the aisles through the air vents at the top on different layers on the actual film stage. You have the television aspect where it's the need for breaks and the way that they tell the stories in short quips and blur and bursts. And of course it's a play because it's a play in the very shortest sense of the word. So basically it's a medium combined effort as opposed to a genre combined one. I, I want to go back to the idea of, of, pop culture um twice both in the second act and the third act there's a bit of a, a melding of pop music being sung especially in, in, in the second act they do a medley of it seems like greatest hits from the 90s up until present day for us but i look at it and it's the same thing as like a broken telephone where, you know, after stories get passed down, they change ever so slightly. As far as this, this pop music goes, what's the difference between, you know, late nineties R and B pop and early two thousands hip hop? 
you know, in, in 50 years, there is no difference. They're, they're one and right. the same. It's, you know, five years difference. What's that? A blip on the radar sort of thing. So that's how you can have, um, songs where to us that kind of sounds funny that you have a, a pop R and B song next to a rap song, but in their eyes, it's one after another and it's okay to meld them together because it's the same thing. It's like quoting Shakespeare and Beckett in the same sentence. Right. And it's interesting because obviously these songs aren't difficult to write about because they're not too hard to find. But that's the interesting thing about this is these are clearly songs that have been shoved into consumers' heads over and over again through the radio or through movies or through commercials. These are songs that we all know incredibly well and it explains why they're stuck in their heads and they know all the lyrics really well. The contexts of course change for what these lyrics represent, but it it's an obvious it's an obvious thing why these songs were used. And it's also a bit of a statement when it comes to the whole fact that the Simpsons are being represented. It's implied that other TV shows are used as well, but for this play it's just the Simpsons and it's interesting because Simpsons isn't just a TV show. It's a whole franchise and culture, you know. Well, we'll look at it from from this way. Uh, For anyone that was born from the the mid 80s up until the late 90s, what did you grow up on? What did you what was on TV almost every single hour on every other channel? But the Simpsons. So as a kid, you know, we're we're both the same age. That's sort of what I was raised on. So, so, you know, while there are other big cultural shows, the Simpsons was probably the single biggest cultural show where almost everyone I knew watched it all the time. Exactly. And that's the thing because it's such a cultural impact. I mean, it's arguably influenced many animated and live action sitcoms since it debuted. Um, Again, you know, shows like the West wing, whatever are acclaimed and well beloved and everything, but stuff like that wouldn't work because it has to be, it has to be a world that you could be, shoved right into and that's what the simpsons is and that's why this play makes a lot of sense because it is a pop culture phenomenon you know people quote the simpsons every day they don't necessarily quote the west wing but that doesn't mean the west wing's the worst show you know arguably depending on how you talk to it might even be better but the simpsons is almost a lifestyle in this play it basically is as far as like pop culture appropriation goes in regards to the music you know it makes sense but the simpsons not to say that they're guilty of it because i think everything that they do is very deliberate the simpsons appropriates almost every aspect of pop culture and includes it and you know one of those uh the main episode that they sort of discuss is the kate fear parody and how is that not appropriating other pop culture right and it's interesting because they do talk about the Cape Fear movie within the play. They say, oh, no, not the first one with Robert Mitchum, the second one with Robert De Niro. And they reference it, but they're still referencing it through The Simpsons. They clearly know of the two previous films that influenced this episode, but what do they remember the most? It's the actual episode. I, when they're talking about... Sorry? I, I believe there's a, a famous South Park quote, Simpsons did it. Oh, yeah, Simpsons did it. Yes, no, I was going to bring that up at some point, but yes, yeah, Simpsons, Simpsons did it, and there's a very good reason why that quote exists, because um, pretty much everything you could think of that's not very standard and boring, the Simpsons have already touched upon. Yeah, uh, and, and, I, and not just because they've been around for, what, 400 episodes, but because they pick and choose very culturally relevant things. So you can pick out a famous moment in either history or pop culture from the last 30 plus years. I know the show isn't that old, but still, The Simpsons have either referenced it, parodied it, straight out copied it, made fun of it, anything that you can believe. So when you're talking about using pop culture to tell stories, it's almost impossible not to have that as a part of your lexicon. Right. And it's interesting because so much Simpsons dialogue actually affects this play as well, which it's a given because it's based on the Simpsons, but they take a lot of, 
they basically do what the Simpsons did back to the Simpsons, where they take a lot of Simpsons lines or ideas and change them for the benefit of this play. Like again, without giving too much away, there's a bit with Troy McClure where, you know, he's well known for his, um, his nostalgic reflections of his past. Hi, I'm Troy McClure. You may remember me from such and such examples of jokes. But within this play, because it's the apocalypse, you have this joke where it's, Hi, I'm Troy McClure. You may remember me. Which I think is funny because, first of all, there's nothing to remember him by at this point. And secondly, it's it's this um, existential crisis that he's having right in front of us. So that's basically what The Simpsons would have done to Troy McClure had Troy McClure not been a part of The Simpsons. So a nice ironic full circle there, I think. Yeah, that's that's a pretty funny one. Uh, I, I look at this show, you know, through the eyes of, of theater and things like that, which come before. There, there's a there's an aspect of a vaudevilleism, uh, but really, I look at it almost like the way Greek theater evolved, you know, you, you started out with cave paintings and you started out with passing stories down generation through generation. But then you have, you know, the Greeks were basically the inventors of modern theater where, you know, you'd have a chorus of people and they'd be doing their parts and the audience and the community was so interconnected with it. But, you know, one generation to the next, you know, the Odyssey might have been slightly different one year and then five years later when they're retelling Homer's story, um, it'd probably be slightly differently. Uh, which Homer are you referring to <laughs> now? <laughs> um, it's interesting that you say that because obviously this audience that we have nowadays has a very different attention span. You can't really get away with the Odyssey. And I find that interesting because without giving anything away, there are a lot of moments within Mr. Burns where you have this sense to catch the audience's attention through action or through, you know, gritty moments where it's clear, it's clear that the future is influenced by television and movies because that's kind of what movies and television have done to audiences now where they need perhaps a fight sequence or they might need an outburst or something. You know, they can't just have it be this long, lengthy discussion of humanity. And what you're talking about, this evolution represented in Mr. Burns, picks up on so many things, not just pop culture or the way that Greek and Shakespearean uh, works have evolved throughout the years, never mind in their own time, but also how humanity's need for these ideas that they were brought up on, they can't dispel them, so they have to include them in everything that they have, which includes the short attention span and the need for, for all of these bursts despite the fact that nothing's necessarily happening at points. Yeah. I, I, I want to look at it almost like a giant game of broken telephone. You yes. know, act one starts after the apocalypse and people are sitting around a campfire describing uh, a classic Simpsons episode in great agonizing detail, actually. And then, you know, you have the next act where uh, they're trying to put on an episode. So they're trying to figure out how to work out the intricacies of the, of the details uh, of the episode. And then, you know, by the third act rolls around, which is 75 years after the first, um, it's completely different to the point where the main antagonist is now someone completely different because that the minor details don't matter. It's the the overarching story that they're trying to tell. It matters. So so it's a lot like a broken telephone game. Yeah, and it's interesting that you say that because clearly the final act, which is basically without giving a lot away, as I keep saying, um, it's basically not really a story. It's you witnessing what's being put on without saying too much about that. And you're right with everything that you're saying that it is a game of broken telephone. And what affects broken telephone the most? It's one's emotions and one's own psyche where they implement what they want within the story. And the end result is this emotionally charged, very devastating kind of story, which has nothing to do with the original because clearly it was affected by people who had lost many loved ones in the apocalypse. So you have all of these radically charged, over-the-top things that happen 
And even the way that it looks, where you just see like green goo kind of slipping everywhere because the apocalypse happened due to an electric breakdown and all the nuclear power plants basically ruining humanity. And you have all of these small, subtle details that were included that if I, I want to go see it again, and I'm guaranteed to find things I didn't notice the first time that were clearly or they're implied to be clearly influenced by the devastation and the mental battles that people had while trying to remember things that they loved. You're also dealing with the, the fallibility of human's memory. You know, I, yeah. I can tell you a story and then, you know, if next week we, we go out for drinks and you say, Oh, Hey Dakota, tell me that, tell, tell that story again. They, they, these people would love to hear it. No matter what, I will not be able to repeat the story the same way that I had told you, even if the way I told you was word for word, 100% accurate, just the way you word things, things are going to change ever so slightly. And 75 years of telling the same stories over and over again, it's eventually going to change, you know, bit by bits, you know, it'll be a tiny, tiny changes, but over a long haul, it's going to be quite a bit different. Yeah. And it's interesting to note that because this is humanity's impossible separation from the pop culture that they're shoved right into. So you know, they could have accepted their fate and said, okay, let's start a new world. Uh, you know, we have no joy, but we can pick up at something else. But instead, they stuck to things that they loved remembering and trying to bring back to life. And instead, they have this Frankenstein monster that is so little to do with The Simpsons, but at the same time, it has everything to do with The Simpsons because this is the reinterpretation over 75 years, over hundreds and hundreds of people of all these different cultures and ideas trying to bring back this story that has ceased to exist on television for, again, like seven plus decades. And um, it's just interesting that I have no idea how this was even thought up, but it's actually downright impressive. I've got to say it's a, it's a pretty good critique on, you know, how we view stories and tell stories while at the same time holding up a mirror to ourselves about what do we hold near and dear to our hearts. Yeah, and we do that anyways with The Simpsons where again, because it's such a quotable show and it's been going on for almost 30 seasons now, I believe. Um It's the same age as have... us. It's 26 <laughs> it's years old. It's actually 26. Okay, yeah. wow. Um, well, well done, Substance. And then Bart's what now? Like 30-something? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so because we quoted already, and this has probably happened with you, where let's say there was an episode you didn't see growing up, and somebody came up to you and said, oh, oh, me failed English? That's, that's impossible. You have to watch this. And you go watch that episode and see Ralph Wiggum, and it didn't play out exactly the way you imagined. And that's when we have the evidence there. This is at a time where, you know, we can't refer back to the original. So anything is up in the air. When people confuse characters of plot lines, basically anybody could be right because anybody could be remembering this wrong. And the further time that goes along, the more confused everyone's going to get. But we, we have that problem now even where, again, guaranteed, you've remembered something differently than somebody else, you go back and watch and you say, oh, damn, I was wrong. They were right. I, why did I think this happened, you know? Yeah, we, we humans definitely have a very selective memory, which is why it's kind of funny that um, in court cases, eyewitnesses are the least reliable source of information, even though the fact that they were right there witnessing something. <laughs> Well, I think there's a lot of things we need to fix with the legal system, but this is ContraZoom. This isn't, uh, well, 12, 12 Angry Men, I guess, which was <laughs> actually our original title we were going to have. What was it, The Seventh Man? Something like that. <laughs> In relation to 12, to 12 Angry Men, but I digress. <laughs> that said, uh, Mr. Bird's a post-electric play is playing until June 7th out of the East End. As I said in the interview, I highly recommend that everyone sees it. I think there's, there's a good cross section of people that would be interested. One, if you like theater, Hey, go out and check it out. You've probably already heard of this and seen the posters on the subways and things like that. Two, if you love the Simpsons, it's a great take on what that show means to all of us. And, and lastly, I think if, 
if you're just someone who's up for a unique experience, something that you've probably never seen and probably will never see again, you'd probably be remiss to not see this. Um, so, so I definitely wholeheartedly recommend this to anyone that's listening. Absolutely. I mean, after seeing that really bizarre and crazy third act, to see people having a standing ovation, it felt good to say, okay, I'm not the only one who thinks that there's something really incredible and tangible here, despite the fact that it's very, very insane, basically. Uh, insane in a way that it comes straight out of Bart's imagination, almost. Um, and again, there, were, there was a standing ovation, and you know the, the cast came out three or four times to take more bows because people wouldn't stop clapping. So for something to be that outrageous and imaginative and have that kind of reception you've got to have your interest peaked i mean seriously yeah absolutely um so where could all of our listeners find you andreas uh well after the apocalypse nowhere but um for now you can find me on twitter at andreas babs and you can find me uh maybe i'll start quoting the simpsons more on twitter at dgapa uh, and you can also follow along on the show at ContraZoom pod and you can also find the show notes we're going to give links to where you can buy the tickets and a whole bunch of other great stuff on liveandlimbo.com and we highly recommend that you you do go out and see it and you know what support some local theaters support some good toronto people and support some good art like good on them for doing something that's that interesting and bold it's why we took a bit of a segue from film to dive into theater it was absolutely worth it and a question what theater is yeah and next time we'll be back to talking about movies so you know if you hated us talking about theater it's only one episode and uh we'll be back pleasing you again later thanks so much for listening Jimsy,